This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. When uh, people hear the phrase church discipline, it can conjure up negative associations of being over some father's knee at some point in one's past. So right out of the gate, I want to equate for you discipline with discipleship and see the two words are related visually. Discipline is part of discipleship. Jonathan Lehman writes this. He says, discipleship in the local church involves church members helping one another follow Jesus. Members do this through formation and correction. They teach the good and they correct the bad. That's discipleship in a nutshell. Church members helping one another follow Jesus. And we do this through formation and correction. We teach the good, we correct the bad. This is a a living out of what we looked at in a previous installment of this series. We looked at scripture, 2 Timothy 3, all scriptures God breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped in every good work. There are four descriptors of scripture that break down into two categories, doctrine and behavior. The scriptures teach the good and they correct the bad. As Christians, we're people of the book. We do the same thing. We use the scriptures, we teach the good, we correct the bad. That's church discipline. Now, if you have any familiarity with the scriptures at all, you're not going to have a problem with the word discipline because the vast majority of us have been exposed to Hebrews 12. Let me read it for you. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So if you have a hang-up with church discipline, it's probably going to be the church part. Most people will readily admit, God has the right to discipline me. He's God. But the church? I don't know about that. Well, let's see what the scriptures teach. Very, very simple outline today. The texts and the takeaways. The texts and the takeaways. Very quickly, a cursory reading of the texts that talk about this topic. How do you respond when someone has sinned against you? Do you criticize them to others and then have nothing to do with them anymore? Do you just build up resentment in your heart against them? Well, look at what Jesus says. Matthew 18, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault 
just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That's rather straightforward. Fellow believer sins against you, your first step is to tell other people what they did to you. Just testing you. (laughs) No, if a a fellow believer sins against you, your first step is to talk to that person about it, one-on-one. Before you utter a single word to another person about what took place, you go to that person and you talk it out. If they don't listen, get one or two other believers involved without tipping the scales in your favor in advance. If they still don't listen, the church is included. If they don't listen to the church, they're treated as unbelievers. In other words, the church removes its affirmation that the individual belongs to God's kingdom by removing them from church membership. Here's another one, 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Paul's writing to a church, keep in mind, in Corinth, writing to a church. And of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slander, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So there's someone within the Corinthian church living in a moral lifestyle. Why does Paul say all this? Because he's come to hate this guy? No. Paul says all this because the man had become deeply deceived. He thought that he could be a Christian while deliberately disobeying the Lord. Perhaps he thought that there was nothing wrong with having an ongoing affair with his father's wife while still professing to be a Jesus follower. In this case, Paul is saying it is incumbent on the church to show the man his falsity, the falsity of his profession, by removing the affirmation that this man belongs to the kingdom by removing him from church membership. 2 Thessalonians 3, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. 
On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even while we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet, do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. So in Thessalonica, there's some people in the church who were being lazy. They weren't doing anything. To make matters worse, they were defending their inactivity, saying it was God's will for them not to work. Obviously, that argument wasn't going to fly with Paul. Inactivity, laziness, refusal to work is a serious sin. And it's spelled out when Paul tells Christians not to associate with those who call themselves Christians but refuse to heed his instructions on this matter. One more. Titus 3. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because they are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Apparently some people in the church that Titus was pastoring were causing divisions over issues that weren't that important. Warn them once, warn them twice. After that, put them out of fellowship in the church. Now there are other passages that talk about this, but you get the flavor. You get the flavor. God cares about both our understanding of his truth and our living it out. He cares especially about how we live together as Christians. All kinds of situations mentioned in these passages are, according to the Bible, legitimate areas for our concern. Now, you might be surprised to read some of these. Some of these might be shocking to you. You might be surprised to learn that in times past, the church actually did quite a bit of church discipline. It was a staple in various kinds of gatherings to render verdicts on the conduct of church members. Writing over 60 years ago, H.E. Dana observed this. The abuse of discipline is reprehensible and destructive, but not more than the abandonment of discipline. Let me read that sentence again. The abuse of discipline is reprehensible and destructive, but not more than the abandonment of discipline. Two generations ago, the churches were applying discipline in a vindictive and arbitrary fashion that justly brought it into disrepute. Today, the pendulum has swung the other, to the other extreme. Discipline is almost wholly neglected. It is time for a new generation of pastors to restore this important function of the church to its rightful significance and place in church life. So what do we make of these texts? You're exposed to them now. You know what they're talking about. What are the takeaways? What are the practical implications of this? Let me mention a few. First, Christians are authorized to address sin in one another. Christians are authorized to address sin in one another. 
This is the plain teaching of Jesus in Matthew 18. This is the plain teaching of Paul in Galatians 6. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Christians are authorized to address sin in one another. Now look up here a second. Ideally, this is where 99% of church discipline takes place. (laughs) It takes place in already established relationships that you have with other Christians. In the organic rhythms of weekly life. Ideally, this is where 99% of church discipline takes place. When you're already established relationships with other Christians, where you're teaching the good and correcting the bad in each other. Now, I understand how this whole topic can sound very odd for 21st century Americans who live in a don't judge me culture. Okay, so let's do a sidebar. I thought about not doing this, but I'm going to do it. A sidebar on that passage of scripture that's trotted out so often. Whenever somebody hears something that they're uncomfortable with or is confronted over some issue, don't judge lest you be judged. Okay, once and for all, let's make this very clear. You know the passage, Matthew 7, Jesus is teaching. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Okay, that's the passage. Now, when Jesus says in verse 1, do not judge or you too will be judged, he is not saying, turn a blind eye to sin and unrighteousness. He's not saying keep quiet when you see wrongdoing. After all, in this passage about not judging, Jesus does label some people as dogs and pigs. It's worth making that observation. Don't judge, you dog. Don't judge, you pig. He's not turning a blind eye to sin. He's not keeping quiet over wrongdoing. So the exhortation not to judge doesn't mean ignoring sin, keeping your mouth shut when you see it. Look a little further down. Verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now I'm going to get to the plank part in a minute, but notice what it doesn't say. Hey, take care of the plank in your own eye. Hey, don't worry about the speck in the other person's eye. Don't worry about it. No. Remove it. Remove it. So this passage doesn't mean Christians are supposed to avoid making moral judgments. It does not say that. In a passage about not being judgmental, Jesus still makes moral judgments and exhorts us to do likewise. So it cannot mean ignore wrongdoing, turn a blind eye to sin. It cannot mean that. This passage is fundamentally about attitude. It forbids a condemning spirit to level judgment calls at someone or about someone in order to make ourselves feel better or in order to be heard or to enhance our reputation or simply to demean another person is what is forbidden in the passage. 
This is why Jesus says, before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, you need to remove the plank from your own. Before you confront someone or make a judgment call about their attitude, examine yourself. Ask yourself some tough questions. Spend some time in prayer. God, before I do this, I need to confess my own unrighteousness to you. I also need your help in assessing my motives for confronting this person. Am I doing this because I'm genuinely concerned for their spiritual well-being? Am I doing this out of love or am I doing this to take them down a notch or two? So by getting real and honest about your own sin before confronting someone else, you'll create a spirit of humility. So often we we condemn, we criticize, we confront out of a spirit of pride. That's what Jesus is warning us about. He's not saying don't confront sin. He's saying confront sin with humility and a genuine regard for the spiritual well-being of others, which is what Paul is precisely talking about in Galatians 6.1. So churches have to foster a culture where correction is welcomed. We have to do that. And I think there's a very simple way this gets started and grows. Very simple way. You need to go to a few other Christians in this church and tell them, I authorize you to teach the good and correct the bad in my life. You want to get this thing rolling really fast? You do that. You go to somebody, you say, I want you to play that role in my life. To teach the good and correct the bad. One pastor relays a story from his own life that I think is is a great picture of how this ought to work. Ideally, in a local church. He writes this, I remember having a conversation about my income taxes with another elder in my church, Jamie. Somewhere in the conversation, Jamie mentioned something about paying taxes on the rental income that my wife and I were receiving from the person living in our basement. The very second that Jamie said the words rental income, the thought popped into my head. Wait a second, rental income? I need to pay taxes on those rent checks, don't I? Effectively, I'd been stealing from the United States government and I didn't know it. Therefore, as a Christian, I had no choice but to go back and open up the previous year's taxes and pay the additional money. This is how it should ordinarily work. In the organic rhythms of everyday life, your friendships, your fellowship with other Christians were teaching the good and correcting the bad. Teaching the good and correcting the bad. Second thing we learn, when addressing sin, keep the circle as small as necessary to produce repentance. Keep the circle as small as necessary to produce repentance. Now, I understand church discipline can conjure up images of the Salem witch trials. That's not what we're talking about. The teaching of Scripture is clear. The the circle should be kept small. It starts with one. And the only reason the circle expands is if there's no repentance, if there's no reconciliation, if there's no working it out. Keep the circle as small as possible to produce repentance. Third, local churches are given judicial authority. Now, how this works out can often depend on the church's polity. But make no mistake about it, there is a judicial authority that's given to churches. Let me read some of these passages. Matthew 18, if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this. 1 Corinthians 5, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. 
But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slander, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. There's no question. There's an edge to these, isn't there? But please notice this judicial authority is exercised only when faced with unrepentance. Please note that. Only when there is characteristically unrepentant sin. Where it persists. It persists. In that case, the church does have God-given authority to exercise judicial discipline. There's another takeaway. Church discipline, and whether that's in private with your friends, your Christians, friends, or in a public setting, church discipline is a mini-judgment for the purpose of repentance. Church discipline is, in fact, a great mercy that God has installed into the life of the church. It's a great mercy let me, let me make the case for this. Why is this a great mercy? Coming off our thorough study of the book of Revelation, we were bombarded with images and pictures and texts that clearly portray God as judge. There is no question. We will all face God as judge one day. You will face God as your judge one day. Now, I would rather face him with confidence that the new birth he worked in my life was real, having been tested through the disciplinary and loving corrections offered to me by my brothers and sisters in Christ. Because there is such a thing as bogus faith. Hebrews 6, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. A little later in the book, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Church discipline is a great mercy. It is better to face church discipline and make a course correction than for the church to ignore it and for us to continue down a path that leads to this. Last, God saved you to live a holy life. It cannot be emphasized enough. God's people are called to be holy. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Discipline helps the church retain its distinctiveness. One of the warnings that Jesus issues to a couple of the churches in Revelation is that they're in danger of being snuffed out because they're shadowing the world. 
They lost their distinctiveness. The church is the body of Christ, the body of Christ. We exist to image Christ to the world, to be the presence of Christ in the world. As Christians, we are Jesus' representatives. Do you think of yourself that way? Do you think of us collectively that way? We are Jesus' representatives. Listen, discipline ensures we represent Jesus and not someone else. It ensures we represent Jesus and not someone else. Christians are authorized to address sin in one another. When addressing sin, keep the circle as small as necessary to produce repentance. Local churches are given judicial authority. Church discipline is a mini judgment for the purpose of repentance and God saved you to live a holy life. Now, I understand there's an edge to this. I was telling the worship team backstage, this three set of three sermons here is kind of the broccoli of preaching at the moment. I understand there's an edge to this. It doesn't feel good. And I would guess that to a great degree, the cause of that is the radical distortion the concept of love has undergone in Western civilization. The radical distortion of the concept of love that has taken place in Western civilization. Let's let's do a thought experiment as we close here. If your spouse commits adultery each night, would you begin to question whether or not he or she loves you? I'm going to go out on a limb and assume you would. It's at that point we need to stop and realize something. Genuine love eliminates options. Genuine love eliminates options. In loving your spouse, you eliminate the option of sleeping around with other people. Now, By definition, then, the eliminating of options is simultaneously the setting up of boundaries, right? Boundaries presuppose authority. That is, something or someone has determined crossing those particular boundaries would be unloving. So we can say that love is not infinite tolerance of any behavior, Love actually needs boundaries to remain love. Love needs an authority to determine those boundaries in order to remain love. Your spouse's love for you explicitly means there are behaviors that are way out of bounds if they truly love you. And someone or something has determined what those behaviors are. That someone or something is an authority. Love needs authority to remain love. It needs authority to remain love. Love cannot remain love without authority. Now, there are two questions as I see that fall out of that. Who or what gets to decide what those boundaries are? 
And who or what gets to decide what happens when those boundaries are crossed? And to both of those questions, we answer God's word. Now, we've looked at at some boundaries in these four passages of scripture. Crossing them is neither loving to God, nor is it loving to other people. So the loving action to take is to address it. We've looked at actions you are to take as a Christian in lovingly bringing to repentance someone who's crossed those boundaries. We've looked at the role the church plays in these matters. Authority and love are not mutually exclusive. Love needs authority to remain love. Now, in the end, this is going to be an exercise of faith. Do we trust God's word has the precise GPS locations for those boundary markers that keep us firmly implanted in the land of love for God and love for neighbor? Do we trust that God's word provides us with instructions on what to do if those boundaries are crossed? In the Chronicles of Narnia, Eustace is this character you just want to slap until he has this transformational experience with Aslan. Uh, You know how he was. He was arrogant, self-centered, all-around annoying character. In the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, on one of the islands the crew lands on, Eustace finds a dragon's lair and uh, is very greedy for the treasure. He puts on this gold bracelet. You remember, he falls asleep, and when he wakes up, he's been turned into a dragon. Lewis writes, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. Eustace had fleeting thoughts of relief at being the biggest thing around, but he quickly realizes that he's cut off from all his friends and his family and, and uh, his friends and humanity, and he feels the weight of this loneliness. He desperately wants to change. Well, that night, Aslan comes to Eustace and leads him to a large well. But Aslan told him that he has to undress first, and that by that he meant you have to peel off the dragon skin. You can't go into the well looking like that. But Eustace found that no matter how many layers of dragon skins he managed to peel off himself, he was still a dragon. Then Aslan said to him, you have to let me do it for you. Eustace said, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I ever felt. Well, he pulled the beastly stuff off just as I thought I had done myself before the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying in the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And then he threw me in the pool. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. Then I saw I had become a boy again. God disciplines those he loves. Sometimes he uses another Christian to do that. Sometimes he uses the church to do that. But it's always purposeful. 
to peel off the beastly layers of dragon skin and to make us his children again. Let's pray. Lord, we need your spirit to make this one sink in. This is not a teaching of scripture that we will find naturally palatable. It's not a teaching of scripture that we will easily, naturally drift into. But it's clear. And it's in your word, and that's enough. And so I pray, God, first of all, that you would recall these passages of Scripture to us when they need to be. That uh, we would be faithful in examining our hearts, our minds, our motives as we seek to live them out. And that ultimately we would see the bigger picture that's involved. We are the body of Christ. We exist to be his representatives in the world. And we want to represent him, not somebody else. We thank you for this practice that you've put into the church. It's a great mercy. It's a great mercy. It's a reenacting, in fact, of the gospel itself. Where on the one hand, we are reminded of our depravity. We are more sinful, flawed, and messed up than we can possibly imagine. But we're reminded of your love, which seeks to forgive, restore, and transform. We give you thanks for this. Even though it's hard to swallow, we give you thanks for it. In Christ's name, amen.